This is AI Podcast, not artificial intelligence, agency intelligence. Our team's going to be 10 times stronger than all the other teams. A platform for agents. When people think of niche marketing, they're thinking so small scale. In real life agencies sharing their thoughts. All you need to do is get in front of more people. To transform an industry. Better coverages, uh, better pricing, just better everything. Real difference between givers, takers, and matchers. Agents. I guess I took a slightly different path coming to the agency. I know a lot of agencies. You can partner your clients with those companies that are looking for that specific target market. This is AI Podcast. Are you ready? I am. Let's go. Hello, everybody out there. Welcome to another episode, to another show, to another podcast here of Agency Intelligence. I'm your host, Jason Cass, and today we are continuing the Summer of Sales series. So I don't know exactly when this one came out. This is either the second to last one or the last one. I really don't know. I imagine I just don't know, but you're going to listen to it. And I hope that you've enjoyed this summer's uh, sales series because this is something I've said this a couple of times. We don't talk a lot about sales on this podcast. We talk a lot about high level stuff in the, in the clouds. We also talk about things in the dirt, more related to the agency, technology, workflows, processes, you know, those different types of things, but we really don't dive into sales. And so to line it up with the commercial alliance prospecting and sales, you know, of course, that I teamed up with Total CSR to produce. Whenever we released that July 1st, it kind of got a lot of people talking about sales, a lot of people asking me questions about my course, but so much some of the stuff that's in it and why I teach it that way. And so I kind of said, let's like go find a bunch of salespeople. So I hope I've fulfilled uh, what I intended to do for you. I think this is now going to be probably our sixth or seventh person uh, regarding sales. And I got them from inside the industry and out. So if you're just now joining us for the first time ever and you're not a loyal listener, yet you will be. But go back and listen. Um, this whole year has been fantastic. We've had some dynamic speakers. So greatly uh, appreciate everybody who came on. But in the meantime, let's get to who we have today, Mr. David Carruthers. David, how are you, sir? No pressure on the dynamic speaker part, right? I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah, no pressure. I think you're going to do well. I've already, uh, I, for all you loyal listeners, I didn't have uh, how we got to this. I like to tell the loyal listeners how we found each other or, or where it came about. But uh, David is part of the mastermind, and we happen to be talking Man, I can't even remember what brought us together, David, on that phone call about a week and a half ago. And he started talking to me about some of the stuff that he was doing in his agency and where he had come from and where he had went. And I was like, wow. I was like, man, we got to stop right here and get this on a podcast. So here we are on August 15th of 2019, uh, early in the morning. For, for us, it's not early. He gets up at 5, but it's only 8 p.m. here, Central Standard Time, 9 his time. David, what's what's the state you're you're at? Where are you located? We're in the uh, Tampa Bay area of Florida. Tampa Bay area of Florida. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, that's uh, one of my favorite places, and which is going to be uh, one of our, which is hosting St. Pete Beach out there is hosting BrainShare 2019. That's going to be a good time, David. That's going to be a good time. Good spot. Good venue, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. David, are you an iPhone or are you a Droid user? iPhone iPhone. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> do you love to win or do you hate to lose? Both. Both, huh? 
I put a I gun. To, well, that's I love to win, good. man. I love you, to win. I do too. I really do too. And you understand the principles. We know we all do that. You learn from losing, but I still, it still sucks, you know, and you still do learn, but man, I love to win. And I guess the only way you can really true to the love to win is to lose a lot so you can learn to win. Anyways, I had a, speaking of which I had a, uh, one of the, this new kid in my agency, David, his name's Joe. We were out having a, um, a, uh, an office day out on the lake, out at my lake here. And we all met out and we were boating and having some good time, some cold, refreshing beverages. And, and something he said, we were talking about this person and I can't remember who it was or whatever, but we were talking about how you need to learn to learn. And that's what he said. And he said, you know what? He's 23 years old. He's witty as can be. And, but he said it all seriously. And he says, you know, you need to learn to learn. That's the first step in not being stupid. And I really thought to myself, I was like, that sounds funny. But if you really think about that, that needs to be on a, on a t-shirt, right? Like the front needs to say, learn to learn. And then on the back, it needs to say like, it's the first step to not being stupid. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was great. That, that's pretty profound for a 23 year old. He hadn't, even, <laughs> he hadn't even been around long enough to have his butt kicked a few times yet. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. He uh, uh, is taking his testing very, very soon for us. He's going to be a rock star. He's going to be our inside personal line sales guy. That's not something that we really drive towards, but we've got grown enough now that we have to get there. Okay. Uh, and the last one is if you had to choose, these were the only two options out there and you had to choose one or the other. Would you say what got you to where you are today? in your business life, in your family life, overall, the life of David Carruthers, has it been skill or luck? One I think more you than make the your other. Own, yeah, I, I think you make your own luck, man. To be perfectly honest with you, I think it's um, anytime anybody asks me what it takes to succeed in the industry, I tell them you, you really need to look at how athletics rates people and you have to be a five-tool player, just like if you're going through a baseball draft. You need to have – be able to hit for power, hit for average, have some speed, you know, have a good arm and, and have all of the five tools necessary. And I mean, the insurance industry is really no different than that. So, you know, I think that that there's a certain amount of luck sometimes that we run into in terms of getting referred into a, a nice sized commercial account or anything like that. But at the end of the day, I think that if you're making conscious efforts to educate yourself and stay on top of your game, not just from a technical standpoint, but from a sales standpoint and a, a leadership and development standpoint. And even, you know, I'm a, a, I read a lot of books. So even parenting and, and just how to be a good person. I think that if you're doing all of those things to hone in your skills, that a lot of things luckily open up for you. You're a man. Well said. Anybody who wants to be a loyal listener and wants to be a rock star, there's going to be points and times in this podcast. You're going to think, man, this guy's incredible. And you're going to just want to eat up those little bites. There's your first bite right there. Okay. Market in your market, book market. If you're listening on Audible. Oh, never mind. You can't listen to the podcast on Audible. What am I, nerd? What's wrong with me? I tell you what, David, the past couple of podcasts, like I was doing one yesterday and my mind was just so out there and wild. I, I just think there's so much going on, David, so much going on. David, take us back to diapers, take us to high school, whenever you want, bring us forward to where David Carruthers is in Florida in 2019 right now. Wow. That's a long and storied past. I, I look back and usually when you, when people ask you how you got to where you are, there's a certain perception that you're successful where you are right now. And 
you know, I look back at the things over the course of my life that allowed me to sort of get to where I am today and, and be able to do what I do. You know, one of the first things that I would tell you is I was born outside of Cleveland, Ohio, in a, in a town called Lorraine, right up off of Lake Erie. And my dad was in the steel industry when I was growing up. And so we bounced around the U.S. steel circuit because we hadn't outsourced everything to Japan at that point. And so we lived in the Cleveland area of Ohio. We lived in the um, the Mon Valley outside of Pittsburgh, uh, in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, when U.S. Steel had a big presence there. Then they opened up a seamless pipe mill down in Birmingham, Alabama, actually in Fairfield, in roughly 83, 84. And, and my dad went down and opened that as a risk manager, of all things. And then he sort of stayed in industry and in, in corporate risk management and HR type jobs for the course of his career. But it seemed like every two to three years we were right. moving. And we moved from the time that I was in diapers until the time that I was in high school. And literally the day after I graduated high school that we moved back here to the Tampa area. And then that's sort of where we've established roots for a while. But you know, my my thing is a lot of kids, in, and when you are a kid that's that's moving around like that a lot, you end up being bullying was a little different animal back in those days. There wasn't nearly the attention that was given to it. There wasn't the the social media to share stories of things like that. So you had to learn pretty quick in life how to either defend yourself or how to defuse situations or how to integrate with new people. And I, I have to tell you. Um, as much as a lot of the times it hurt to have to move and you would have friends and you knew you may never see them again because you're nine years old and, and moving to a new place, but you knew that you were going to make new friends and you had to assimilate to that. And that skill alone, even though I didn't know that I was learning it at the time, has conditioned me to be able to make introductions and, and friendships with total strangers every day. And so it's funny because I have four kids. And when my oldest son asked me, dad, what do you do for a living? I said, I have the coolest job ever, man. I get paid to make friends. And, you know, that's really the way that I view where I'm at today. But from a professional skill uh, set standpoint, there are a lot of things that conditioned me to do what I do today as well. I graduated from, I ended up graduating from high school in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And it was really an interesting scenario up there. My father had taken a job as the corporate director of safety and security for a company called Ravenswood Aluminum. And literally two months after we got up there, Ravenswood Aluminum went on one of the worst strikes in history. And my dad was locked into the plant because of his job. My senior year of high school, I probably saw him two to three times, period, just because he was never able to come home. It got extremely violent. We were, um, I was never allowed to go out unless I was with four or five other people. And we always had security detail following us to make sure that there wasn't an issue with it. And I played sports. You know, I was a big, big time athlete, sports guy. You know, I played baseball and basketball in high school. And so I also happened to share my father's name. So when uh, my high school team was scheduled to play in Ravenswood, West Virginia, where the company was headquartered. And it was announced that David Carruthers was going to be the starting pitcher. You can imagine there were plenty of ears that perked up. So imagine being a 16, 17-year-old kid that is going into hostile territory, knowing you have to perform on the mound as a pitcher with everybody and their brother 
wanting to, you know, waiting to see exactly what was going to happen. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things I think that when you when you look at it, that's what that that, that forms you into having thick skin. It makes you mentally tough. It makes you physically tough and it makes you emotionally tough. Happy to say that I went in and it was kind of a weird situation. I didn't end up starting. My coach was a little bit nervous about everything. And there were literally armed security guards at the fence posts for the game just to make sure nothing happened. And I ended up getting called in in relief. And wouldn't you know that I beamed the first guy that I faced right in the right in the back of the, right in the back man got hit him in the kidneys he had to get get carted off the field and then the rest of it was history I was able to get the save in that moment but good grief you want to talk about fighting through nerves I don't know that I'll ever be at a closing table with an account where I have more adrenaline rush than what I did there wow I ended up going to college and playing ball in college and then had some issues with wow. college and growing up in a very conservative home and probably not taking things as seriously as I needed to. So I took the Tommy Boy plan to get through college. I should probably have a double doctorate right now, but it ended up taking me about eight years to go through and get my degrees. But again, we talk about being tested by fire and and forging us into stronger, you know, stronger instruments. And so I ended up taking a job as a stalker at a grocery store. Maybe in my mind, I thought I was going to be the next Kurt Warner story and I was going to you know, somehow miraculously rise from the ashes of Winn-Dixie and be able to go out and play professional baseball at some point, but never happened. And what ended up happening is you know, a couple of things. Number one, when I decided that I was ready to get serious and um, ask my wife to marry me at the time, I knew I needed to fix things that were going on in terms of irresponsibility and other things in my life. And so I packed everything I had in my truck from Morgantown, West Virginia, and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, which is where my parents were living at the time. And my little sister was the head cashier at a grocery store. And I picked up the phone and said, I need a job. Are you guys hiring? And she said, the store manager's here. He said, come by and introduce him. So what did I do? I put on a shirt and a tie. And I went down and I introduced myself to the store manager who looked at me like I had an eyeball in the middle of my forehead because I dressed in a shirt and tie to go talk to him about a job stocking groceries. And he said, David, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You can either work in the dairy department for us during the day for $5.85 an hour, or you can be an overnight stocker for six thirty-five. dollars And in my mind, and in the environment that I came from in an extremely repressed economy in West Virginia, where I was working three jobs just to make rent, I said, I'm going to take the 635, not realizing I was committing myself to work graveyard shift for the foreseeable future for what amounted to $20 a week. So probably not the most well thought out decision that I made, but I did it. And, um, you know, two years later, I was running a store for them. I ended up running a, a 15 million, $16 million a year operation for Winn-Dixie in Birmingham, Alabama. And, you know, for those who don't don't know or have a, a, an opinion about how Winn-Dixie is or operates at that time, we had 47% market share in Birmingham. So for my friends in Florida, we were the equivalent as to what Publix is down here in that market. So it was actually a sense of pride to say, this is the company I'm working for. Um, and today, sometimes with all of the things that have happened over the course of the last few years, that make much sense. And I, I don't have that sense of pride because this, the company sort of tanked. But from that point, I ended up taking a job with Super Target where they were expanding in the Alabama, you know, in, in the Southeast. And actually, little known fact, at that time, they had the number, the most Super Targets per capita of any state in the country. So there was a huge opportunity for people who had grocery experience to go and work with them. 
And uh, I did. And, and I learned a ton. I actually it, it ended my career traveling stores, traveling around the country and helping open up stores in a logistics compa- uh, capacity, setting up the back room and the back room computer, computer systems and all of the things that go to inventory management and those things. And so what happened was um, they made a decision to where the logistics functions ended up going back overnight. And I agreed to do it under the understanding that I was going to be pulled off a graveyard shift as soon as, you know, the fourth quarter was over in that year. I got to the point that I turned 30 years old. I'm 46 today. I got to the point that I turned 30 and my oldest son was two years old and he had no clue who his dad was. And it was because I was working literally 80, 90, hundred hours a week. I would go into work at eight o'clock at night and I would leave at noon the next day only to go home, take a nap and be back in at eight or nine o'clock the next night. And that just didn't work. That's, you know, that's not who I am. That's not where I wanted my priorities to be. I did not want to sell out relationship with my, my son and my family to, to work. And so I, I came to the point where I said, what do I have, to, what do I want to be when I grow up? Because I'm 30, I got to figure something out. And I know how to work hard. I've got blue collar work ethic. I understand operations at a very high level. I've had total PL responsibility for almost a decade at this point. I understand hiring. I understand firing. And all of the things that I had been trained and conditioned for both through my, my college career, but also my working career, because I was working 80 hours a week running a grocery store and going to school at night full time to finish off getting my degrees. So tongue in cheek, I say I took the Tommy boy approach, but if the truth were to be told, I took an approach nobody should ever want to go through because I work like a dog during the day and I work like a dog at night. And so we got to that point and I, uh, my dad at that Is point- Is this where you're getting into, David, we got to, we got to, I do uh, have a podcast limit. So- Yep. So uh, no, I'm just joking with you, but no, if you could get us into, I want to get to the meat of who you are and, and, and the reason why I heard you to come on this podcast. So, so when did we get into insurance? Yeah, we got into insurance when I was 30. That's exactly where I was headed with it. So I, okay. I flew down from Birmingham to Tampa. My father was the risk manager for a PEO at the time, an employee leasing company. And the guy that was the co-chairman of that PEO and owner had owned a large independent agency here in the Tampa Bay area that was sold to a bank when the bank's Uh, were deregulated from participating in the insurance industry. And I flew down on a whim on a Southwest plane ticket for a lunch meeting in Tampa. I had my lunch meeting and I turned around and I went home and I loaded my F-150 with everything I could find that I could fit in there. And I moved down to Tampa that day. And it was the context of that lunch meeting that got me into the industry. There were two things that I heard. The first one is the insurance industry is full of C players. If you look at it, the average person out there is average. And if you're an A player, you are going to absolutely crush it in the insurance industry. And so I thought to myself, all right, that sounds like the deck stacked in my favor. I, I think I'm an A player. I don't know anything at all about the industry, but I put my work ethic and my ability to learn against anybody and, uh, you know, and my creativity and, and the other things that I possess. The second thing I heard was, I'm getting ready to reopen my firm when my non-compete is up and I'm going to have a different iteration. And I want you to think about it this way so that you know how you're going to succeed in this industry. Everybody has $100 that they can spend on insurance and it's in five $20 bills. Those $20 bills are for commercial, personal, life, retirement, and benefits. 
I'm setting up an agency that so that you can go out and you can talk to anybody out there and be able to have the opportunity to get all 520s if you're good enough at closing business. I like that because the 520s, the more 20s I get, the more money I make. So I took that job and I ended up being relatively successful. I was the top producer for the time that I was there, but there was a void. And we all know if we're if we're we've been successful in production working for another independent, we know that there's a point where golden handcuffs are put on you. And that's where equity is offered. If you're working for a good firm that has a good perpetuation plan in place, they want to give you equity to keep you around, just like a law firm makes partners or an accounting firm has partners. Agreed. And I started to look at that and I thought to myself, you know what, this is not equitable for me. It doesn't make much sense because I, I, I appreciate the offer of equity, but I would be so deluded that I would never really get any kind of net worth out of my equity position. I'm making great money. I mean, I was making quarter million dollars plus a year in production commissions, but that's income statement wealth. You know, and I'm a I'm a follower of some of the stuff that Dave Ramsey and, and um, Tom Stanley, the guy that wrote The Millionaire Next Door and some of these other books. So I understand the difference between being income statement rich and being balance sheet rich. Anybody can very, be very, 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 very huge topic you're talking about right now that a lot of people have no clue what you're talking about right now, David. And that's a very, very good thought. So I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want loyal listeners to pay attention here because you said anybody can be income rich, but continue on, David. Yeah. I mean, so in the the thought process behind it is that you can go out and you can make a salary and you can produce for somebody else and you can take 25 cents on the dollar at renewal every year, and you're still doing pretty good if you're managing a residual income on your book for for handling renewals and maybe bringing in new business every now and again. And I mean, I ran the numbers. If I had a million dollar revenue book, I would be making roughly, if all I ever did was manage my renewals, I would be making a quarter million dollars a year. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of people out there that would be happy to do that. They would have money in their 401k. They would have some equity in the agency and everything like that, but that's not how I'm wired. Mm-hmm. And I understood that I could probably also make a quarter million dollars a year if I opened my own firm. And I would also be building an asset that at some point, if I wanted to exit, I would have the ability to really cash in. And so I, def- I deferred my gratification to the future. You know, I started Florida Risk because I wanted to have an, a firm that was different, and we are, and that did things like nobody else does them that had an awesome culture for their team members so that they loved coming to work every day. And that what I found Jason, to be perfectly honest with you is the more times I talk to an agent or, or an agency principal that works somewhere else, they just shake their head and, and stare. And you can tell, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home because they just don't understand why we do what we do and how we can be so progressive and why we don't do things the same way that it's always been done. And I go back to the the average person in this industry is average. And I don't mean any offense by that, but you know, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If, you know, I learned a valuable lesson when I went from playing baseball in uh, high school to baseball in college, I went from being one of the best to going to a team where everybody was one of the best. And you either up your game and you get better because you're around those people, 
or you end up getting lost and never play again. And the insurance industry is exactly the same. And that was the one rub that I had when when the guy that hired me made the comment about everybody's average. If you're an A player, you like to compete against A's every now and again, too. You don't want to just be going out and shooting fish in a barrel because you get weak. You get soft. You quit sharpening the saw. You don't do anything to make yourself better because it becomes easy to close business. I like going against the big boys. I like going against people that are going to get into a knockdown, drag out, five-round championship MMA fight that I can come out with my arm raised on the top. And that is what gets me out of bed every day. So, David, let me ask you a question. Have you read the book, The uh, Outliers? Yes. I've read everything Gladwell's written. Then, I mean, then you understand that your life is a living example of that. Because in there, he said that there's uh, there's five ways that he says distinguishes what the person who of the metric matrix he looks at of famous and successful people that the matrix falls under. There's five main things and two of the top things are when you were born and did you move a lot? A lot of military families have moved a lot. And this is, and David, you know this, you're reading this or you've read this, but uh, this is something that the loyal listeners have heard me talk about. So as you've been talking and I've been listening and taking my notes like I always do, I've been doing some investigating because you told me that you moved a lot, which was something that was a big key and allows you to go in and allows you to 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 just make friends with anybody, feel comfortable in, in surroundings and scenarios where a lot of people don't. You told me that you played sports, which being competitive is a huge thing in the insurance industry. And I've said that for a long time, that one of the main keys to a successful producer is did they play college ball? But when I heard you talking about playing college ball, I happened to jump over and look at your birthday. And if I'm correct, if, if Facebook is correct, it's September 8th, right? Correct. So what's amazing is, is he also pointed out in the book that when you are born is a huge factor into your success. You sit here and talk you sit here and talk about the last 5 minutes about how you like to be around A players and how you like to be around the best. The cutoff for baseball is September 1st in America. The vast majority of baseball players that are professionals in America and even in college were born in September, October, and November because you were older than everybody else. That immediately put you up against the A players, and that propelled you. Then you mix in the fact that you that you moved a lot. You brought in competitiveness. You were you were you were raised through a lot of struggles when you were younger. Like when you read the book Outlier, and then you listen to you for the last holy cow, it was a long time. You're you're gaining on uh, Preston Schmidley. His went about forty five minutes as introduction, and believe me, I, and, and believe me, I heard a lot of people were pissed off. So so the thing is, so this is a good one though, David, because I'm putting this together by looking at my notes and realizing like you are following the model of how that went. Now today you're at Florida Risk Partners. Tell us uh, when you started that in 2016. Yeah, we started, I started in 2016. We are a scratch agency in 2016, cash only, no debt. We started with what little money I had in my pocket and I had probably less in the bank. Uh, so <laughs> it was, it was, it was me, you know, and I had to make, I had to go out and make my own way of it. And so I had a dining room that was converted into an office in my home. And I knew that I could be successful because at this point in my career, I was quite a few years in and I had developed systems as a salesperson that worked for me. And, you know, I was, I was given creative 
leniency as to how I went about things as long as I got them done. And so I knew that if I could just get in front of people and have the conversation with them, that I could sell to them. It really didn't didn't matter. Nobody nobody's going to ask me if they can come meet with me in my office for the types of accounts that I prospect. Right. In in my entire career, I've never closed a single deal inside my office on a on a middle market commercial account. I'm always in their conference room meeting with the CFO, CEO, whatever else. So I had no concerns there. The biggest obstacle that you have is getting carrier contracts. And there's not a lot of understanding on the carrier side when they say, oh, yeah, we'll be happy to come by and talk to you. Let's meet at your office. And I say, eh, not so fast, Sparky. Why don't we meet at the local Starbucks and I'll bring my laptop and we can talk there because right now I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do for office space. And office space for me in a cash-based operation is a fixed cost I'm not willing to mm -hmm. invest in yet. So it made no sense for me to, to invest in Things. And I think a lot of times, you know, we as agents, you know, we're proud people. If we build something, we want everybody to know what we've built. So my mindset's a little bit different. I didn't have to have the biggest and the best of everything. I didn't need to have an office that was basically going to be a monument to myself is how I viewed it, because I wanted everybody to see that I could build this awesome building. And if I'm the only person in there, what what does what sense does it make? I basically look like an <laughs> idiot because I'm spending money on things that we don't have money for. And so we operated very very lean. You know, I invested in uh, some software products uh, so that I was able to operate more efficiently, and I was able to figure out that I could replace two to three bodies for the cost of one if I was investing. What was in those one? Right of, what was one of those systems right off the bat that you invested in? Well, because of how we how we approach middle market accounts specifically to trouble workers' Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I'm sorry, David. I you got I, I know my loyal listeners. What's a middle market account to you? What's premium size? Don't give us revenue. Premium. Yeah, we like to focus between a quarter and a half million dollars okay. in, in premium. That that's where okay. we that's our sweet spot. And typically we lead with workers comp. And so I invested in Zywave's product because my goal was if I can offer a middle market company the ability to get a complimentary experience mod audit, I'm going to get their ear. Most of them have never yeah. had it done before. Uh, most of them, a lot of them, to be honest with you, don't really know what it is and how it works. And in Florida, we have state administered pricing. So the playing field is a little different. doesn't matter if I go to 100 carriers, there, there may be a, a plus or minus a few bucks deviance in what the bottom line of the quote is. But the state sets the rates. And a lot of agents here just throw up their hands and say, well, the workers comps, the workers comp. I'm going to focus on getting you the best price on the auto. I'm going to so focus true. on dropping your GL rate. But the comp is, is what it is. And I realized, again, boom, if I can do something nobody else is doing and they look at me like I'm an idiot who's wasting my time, if I really believe in that and I put my passion into it, it's going to turn into something pretty cool. And so I, that's what I've chosen to do. And, and to this day, this is how we lead, because in Florida, we have the ability to go to the Department of Financial Services website. It'll give you everybody that has workers comp, who the carrier is, when it. Uh, when the, the expiration date is, and you can see the history of all of these things. And so we've gotten very, very good at prospecting based off of information we have in public domain. So much so that our theory is that if your mod is a 1.0 or higher, you should be our client. There's no reason that you're not because you're paying too much for your comp. And so we end up using, I, I, I bought into Zywave, number one for ModMaster, but number two, also for broker briefcase, because I couldn't just go into an account and say, here's all your problems. And I'm a really good guy. I've been doing this for a long time. And I know I have a carrier who will write you, but I had to have right. the ability to give them the solutions to those problems. 
And as an upstart agency with limited capital, I had two choices. I could either find a way to get an instant resource library, or I could try and sit back and every single time a new new obstacle presented itself to me, come up with all that collateral on my own. I didn't have that kind of time. I needed to start producing now. I already mentioned once, I'm married with four kids. You know, there's, there's some things that need to happen in order to, to make sure that your household's running right. And so I invested that money and we are, are huge advocates of that product today. We still use it and, you know, and, and we'll go in and we, we can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you have a mod problem, every one of the people that's on my production team immediately knows we need to look to see what kind of indemnity claims are in the loss runs because we know that the company more than likely is not executing a return to work program the way that they should be because that saves you a lot of, of headache and heartache on your mod. We also like it because we can triangulate, you know, top loss drivers. We can tell you what's going on from, you know, a, a body body part type. You know, how many how much of your mod is is a result of injuries to a specific body part, a specific a specific type of loss, or even an employee. And, and it's funny because I was working with a plumbing company here in town, and I walked in and was talking to the owner. I was like, man, I said, you got to pat yourself on the back. You got the first six figure plumber in the Bay Area working for you. And he just sort of looked at me. He goes. I don't have anybody I'm paying $100,000 a year. I said, well, actually, you've got a guy that's costing you $100,000 a year. You know, you're paying him $60,000 in salary, but you, know, you have $200,000 in manual comp premium and your mod went up by 20 points. So the other $40,000 is money you're just throwing away because he's here. Yeah, and it was probably more than likely very unnecessary that they paid that and the reason why that all that came about. There was just David had never walked into their life. Being serious, right? I mean, they just have never yeah, no, heard 100%. Yeah, and it's it's the same thing that we as agents get all the time. If you go in and you're dealing, I mean, think about it. This is a, a prototypical case, right? It's a plumbing company, old school plumbing company. And you say, hey, man, you need to have light duty. I ain't got light duty. I don't have a job counting paper clips in my company. Well, that's great. You know, I know you didn't, but I did my research before I came to meet with you today. And I went to your website and I noticed that you've had a perpetual job posting for a call center employee for the last two years, it seems like you're always looking for somebody to be in your call center. So my question to you is, why can't we take a plumber that's reduced for light duty or released for light duty and put them in the call center? Who better? Oh. You, you can't tell me it's their personality because these guys are the face of your company every day in somebody's house. So you trust them to interface with your clients. Certainly they can interface on the phone. They can help other plumbers troubleshoot when they're in the field and they can have basic questions that they develop as part of what they're doing that the other call center employees might learn from, and you end up with a more efficient operation overall. And I said, and last but not least, if you ever want to get a plumber back on their truck and fully recovered any quicker, put them in a call center for a couple of days and watch how fast they heal. Hello, loyal listeners. Hey, are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client? Maybe you, maybe not. Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast certified. Damn right. You know what, David? Either they're... they're that is uh, how many times 
when you say similar to what you just told that gentleman, do you hear the response? Why has no other agent ever told me this before? How many 100%. times have you heard that? 100%. There's never, yeah, literally, yes. there's never a time that we have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, yep. and, and it's crazy. And the same thing holds true. So when, then we go into the whole light duty and all the components of a light duty program. And so let's take it another another direction. If somebody says, oh, yeah, we have light duty under control. I never accept that at face value. I say, oh, so you you've met with the treating facility. You've gone over there and, and you know, you've set something up with the business owner and the urgent care or wherever they're going to send their people and make sure that they have a relationship that is going to begin to establish and that they understand that we're a light duty employer. Job you know, and all of these things, and, right? Yep. And then I said, and then when you have an injured employee, do you you have that letter that goes over there, right? That says we're a light duty employer and our employees are our greatest asset. We just want to get them back and assimilated as quickly as possible. If they can be released for light duty, we have a place for them. And I said, then you have that paperwork come back in and you have the letter that goes out to the employee that offers them the job at light duty with the rate commensurate for that position, not what they're making, but commensurate for the position you're offering. And they have the ability to accept or reject that because we know that if they accept it, we're off the indemnity. If they reject it, we're off the indemnity. And we win either way. And again, 100% of the time, the people who said, oh, yeah, we got light duty. We do that all the time. They don't have it to that degree. They just think that they can bring somebody back and it's not formalized. And so that begins to be the wedge at that point. If we can get, if there's still doubt after we get through the initial conversation about, you know, an experience mod audit, once we get into the light duty discussion, the deal's done. I mean, it's it, it literally done because they realize at that point, this is a completely different level than what, than the conversations we're, we're typically having. And I can tell you, Jason, the reason why is extremely simple. We do not sell on price, period. There are a lot of people out there who say, oh, I don't sell on price, but at the end of the day, they sell their soul. If the deal comes down and it's push come to shove, they'll sell on price. And guess what? A year later, they lose that same piece of business because somebody else was able to come, able to come in with a better deal. And it's a very easy thing to overcome. I well, well, well it, 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 oh, hold on. I, w- I want you to overcome that. I want to overcome that um, when it comes to price. But one of the, one of the, oh, shoot, 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 shoot. You were talking about, um, it's easy. Oh, they still sell on price. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I lost it. But anyways, it's an easy thing to overcome. It'll come back to me. Yeah, absolutely. Later. And it, it, it is, it's very easy to overcome. I, I'm telling you right now today, as soon as we're done with this, I'm diving back into my analytics mode because I'm going over to a meeting with a 1400 life landscape roll up. That's 1.2 million in premium just on the workers comp and the entire account is at play. And the reason why I'm going over there has nothing to do with price. Right now, this company has got, it's backed by VCs and they've had different landscaping companies that they've acquired and they're trying to assimilate everybody under a common EIN and all of that stuff. But the one thing that's been a problem is the experience mod. So they decided this is a great idea. We're going to roll everybody into an employee leasing company and we're just going to let things ride the way they are. Because we'll we'll wait for three years and then our model clean itself up and then we'll come oh, back. This out. this is common. I've I've ran into this before. Yeah, and so the 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 the, the thing is, 
that's great, guys. Let's let's talk about it. Let's look at your let's look at how the leasing arrangement works. Send me over your con first send me your NDA so you're freely going to share information with me. But let me see the contract you have with them, you know, with the proposal and the prices. I want your last five years worth of loss runs for every single one of your entities. And then we're gonna do an apples to apples comparison. And so at the end of the day, you know, the bottom line is I I told the guys, these are finance guys. I said, look. This is this is really not a different thought process than income statement rich versus balance sheet rich. You can put them in a PEO and guess what? You're going to pay about the same amount of money that you would pay to have your own program. But if you're willing to continue down the right road and you fix the underlying problems that are causing the price increase, now you're going to have something that you can sustain that's going to create a much, much better valuation for your organization. Sticking somebody in a leasing company to run away from the underlying causes of workers' comp issues is nothing right. more than a Band-Aid on something that probably requires staples to fix. Good Once point. they come back out, they're going to be right back where they were, if not worse, and they don't have the infrastructure that they need to sustain good results, and they're going to get right back into the leasing market. The worst case scenario is if they get into that leasing relationship and they don't fix the underlying causes, they're going to blow that up too. And they're going to have nowhere else that they can go other than the state fund, which is typically triple manual premium. They're going to be out of business. And so when people talk about price, I just laugh. You know, if, if you, if you're willing to sell on price, then you don't believe enough in what you're doing and your own model to hang your hat on that. Now, let me ask you this, David, let me ask you this. So what if it's not, what if you go in there, it's a $300,000 premium account and you go in there and you get all the lost runs, you get everything and they got a 0.87 mod. Everything looks clean. They've hit a couple deer with their, with their vehicles or something, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically a clean account. What's your plan of attack there when there are no issues? Is that, Hey, I'll come back later when there is an issue. What's your attack there? If you're a good salesperson, and I'm taking the insurance agent hat off for just a okay. second. All right. If you're a good salesperson, you should have the ability to pivot on a dime and create doubt in any situation that you're in, period. Whether sometimes it could be a little bit of smoke and mirrors, we know that. Sometimes we tend to embellish position a little bit. But at the end of the day, it comes down to creating doubt. I'm going to give you a concrete example that happened very early in my career for this exact same exact same thing. I went into an account, half a million dollars in manual workers comp premium. Guy comes in beating his chest. Boom, boom, boom. I got a 0.86 mod. What do you think about that? I said, you know what? I said, I think that's pretty good. He goes, pretty good. It's a 0.86. I said, yeah. I said, you know, I'm of, I'm of the school of thought that I look at the mod like I look at your grades in school. If you're a 1.0, you're average, which means you're a C. So if you're a 0.86, I'm going to give you a B plus. He said, well, you know, my agent said that's outstanding. I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, well, your agent was telling you how great you are right now. Did he ever take the time to tell you how good you could be? Oh, I like that. And the guy says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it's really simple. I'm sure that every year when he comes in here with your experience modification audit, he gives you the benchmark for the minimum mod that you could possibly have. So you know how much money you're still spending, even though your claims aren't outrageous and out of control and your mod appears to be pretty good on the surface. How has he shown you? To, to get to that next level. How has he shown you that you can go from good to great? Well, I, I've never seen that. Well, I said, I'm going to do that for you. Let me have your loss runs for the last five years, a copy of your experience mod worksheet. Well, I don't have that. I said, well, you know, your mod's a point at eight, six. He goes, yeah, well, my agent told me. I said, well, they didn't give you a copy of your mod worksheet or you didn't get it from NCCI. No problem. Don't worry about it. 
here's a letter of authorization. It'll allow me to legally pull it. Existing agent will never even know that I got it because it's not an agent of record letter. It just tells NCCI I can get it. And I said, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to go back and I'm going to run this. If I can't make any improvements to your situation whatsoever, I will never ask for another minute of your time. In fact, I will call you back and say, you need to pick up the phone, call, call the person that's currently representing you, tell them thank you because they've done an excellent job. I said, but if I have material information that can show you that you can save money on your total cost of risk in your organization, I'm not only going to expect you to take that meeting with me, but I expect you to hire me because I'm going to show you a different way of doing things that you've never seen before. So you fast forward two weeks, pick up the phone. Hey man, I want to let you know, I've got some results for you. We do need to meet. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Okay. What are you you doing tomorrow? I go over there. Guess what, Jason? The 0.86 mod had a minimum mod of 0.64. They could have Uh. been 22 points better on $500,000 a year. They were leaving $100,000 a year on the table almost. And it was because they thought they were good enough. They thought they had it down and they couldn't get any better. And at the end of the day, they could have been six figures better. So I never take no for an answer. So you just jumped the fence. 100%. So so you jumped the fence. So you say, hey, you've got these problems and I can help you get rid of these problems. But if you don't have problems, you jump the fence the other side and say, well, you're not doing good enough, right? So it's it's either way. And I like that. And to be honest with you, I haven't I haven't done middle market uh, probably about eight years. I'm 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 around the the uh, the uh, the non for profits a lot. And um, they're just they're there's something I need to be more involved in, except that it's not inside my job duty anymore, because their workers comp is always hectic, always out of control, you know. And um, now let me ask you this, David. So you get a person, they've got a one point three seven mod, one point six, whatever. In, in, in the smaller markets, it's very tough to still get another carrier to take that. How? What are the tactics that you use with the carriers to say, "Hey, I know this is a this account has had issues in the past, but I'm doing this, 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 and this. Will you piece help me piece this together? Can you take this account? What are what are your strategies? You know, you got to sell the client. How are you selling the company on taking on this client? We've been selling the company since we've been in business. So at this point, it goes to a matter of reputation. We have carrier partners that we have excellent relationships with. Some are, you know, standard national package markets that write workers comp and the others are regional workers comp carriers that we work with. But it's all about the results that we have delivered. It's the first time that you have to sell them. If you deliver on what you say you're going to do when they stick their neck out for you the first time, then they're going to go to the mat for you every single time. And the way that I position that with them, Jason, honestly, is, listen, guys, this is the most you're ever going to make off of a worker's comp account from this this company because their mod is the highest that we are going to let it go. So if you want an opportunity to get in on the gravy and make a lot of profit in your first couple of years, because we know we can clean this up with our approach, then you can ride the mod down and you'll have a client for life. But if you want to wait until this thing's at a 0.86 or a 0.75 or whatever it ends up being, you're going to run the risk of not getting enough premium to cover that shock loss should it happen down the road. So look at your own book and your profitability. And if you want to be a partner on this, then then this is the way to go. And that's that's how we sell them. And we've been able to consistently deliver the results of bringing down the mod, bringing down loss ratios and all of those things to the point that 
you know, at this point, we really don't get much pushback unless it's something really mm -hmm. severe. But if that's the case, a lot of the time we, we will end up working with that client in a consulting relationship if they've already got a home or, you know, worst case scenario, we may have to put them into a PEO for the time being just because that's the only place they can go besides the Joint Underwriters Association in Florida. But we do that under with the caveat, we are going to be in here and do the same things we would do if you were a standalone workers comp client for us. So we, we do the same loss control visits. We do the same trainings. Um, you know, we use a lot of stuff in regards to training the workforce be, and shifting the it, culture. Would it digitally. be smart for a, an agent out there who's wanting to get into this, been thinking about it, to, to meet with their loss control people from, from two or three companies and say, hey, listen, it's, this is what we're going to do. But, you know, we're using this Zywave company that's going to help us uh, educate people. But then the mod master and the way that we're going to be able to help people, we've put together, here's uh, a framework for our our back to our, our, our back return to work program. Here's some job descriptions and what we're going to talk about with the doctor. There's all of this stuff. I mean, is, is that a good place for them to start? Cause yours is on reputation, but let's be honest, David, you've only been doing this three years. So, uh, two and a half years ago, you were at the part where people are wanting to go, you know? So I'm just trying to, do you remember back then to how you first got it? Or you just went in there and said, Hey, bet on me. I'm a winner. And it worked. Well, we sort of skipped over my whole career prior to Florida risk due to time constraints. And we didn't want to, we sorry, didn't want to do what sorry. we've now coined as pulling. Your Schmidley. Oh. So we didn't want to pull a Schmidley and go any longer, but yeah. it's, it's not been, three, it's not been three years. It's been 15 and I've been doing. That's a good point. And I am sorry. And you know what? We need to go back to that and hear what we've been going 47 minutes. Schmidley was just getting done. Seriously. You've did way better, <laughs> David, way better. Well, so, so, yeah. so so anyways, no, so you were with a place 15 years before that had kind of taught you this situation. I was, well, I mean, I was adapting and this is, goes back to sort of the intellectual capital that I was saying. It didn't make sense for me to, to continue to take a quarter on the dollar when I'm selling what I know in my mind and what I've developed and I can go down and make a dollar on the dollar. So I've been using a similar approach over the course of my entire career. But when all the chips were on the table, that's that's where I was going when I said, you know, you have to have a value proposition you can hang your hat on. I was all in, man. And so I, I knew that this would work. And Florida Risk has just taken it and made it to where everybody in the organization is brought in and trained to do it this way, period. And so what I would say is this. If you want to get an underwriter's attention, if you want to get a loss control person's attention, don't talk about loss runs. Don't talk about Zywave. Don't talk about Modmaster. Those things are all of the tangibles, and it goes without saying that that needs to be included in a full and complete submission. What we talk about okay. to get their attention is behavior. What behaviors have caused the problems that are existing in this organization right now? Is it a behavior from leadership that they just don't put enough emphasis on it and they don't get behind it and they don't beat it into their people's heads every day that safety is part of our culture? Because what I can tell you, Jason, is that if I walk into a manufacturing facility that has workers comp, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can give me the metrics that they use to measure their productivity. They can tell me how many units per hour, how many units per minute, whatever it is that they're producing because they live on productivity. And then I can go to the quality department and the quality department can tell me exactly exactly how they measure quality. Quality is going to be measured in whatever metrics that they use, whether it be the number of rejects from a specific number of random samples or whatever else. But you lose them when you say, well, that's great. You guys are measuring productivity. You're measuring quality. How do you measure your safety performance? And you get crickets. Well, we haven't had an accident. No, no, no. That's not what I ask. 
how do you measure the performance of safety? Because we all know the adage, what gets measured gets done. If you're not measuring it, how do you know that what you're doing is actually working and you haven't just been lucky? Or let me, let's talk about why you're not measuring it and why your results are poor. Either way, you win. And so you talk about behavior when you're talking to an underwriter because it shows the underwriter that you can move past the things that everybody else is going to come in and talk to them about in terms of injury type and loss runs and, and the experience mod and everything else. And you can say, look, I sat down with the, the CFO and the CEO and the leadership team of this company, and here's what I found out. The company measures productivity. The company measures quality. They haven't done a thing to measure safety ever. And so we're going to focus on changing the behavior inside the organization, starting with the leadership all the way down to Johnny, the line employee. And we're going to make sure that we have a consistent message for everything, every initiative that we have this year. And by the way, here are the, here's the top 10 things that we're going to focus on in terms of low-hanging fruit that we know just from simple training and development and then a test to make sure that they understand the information these will these things will fix the majority of the problems. Look, here then you can get into the loss runs. Look, here's a problem with manual material handling because these guys are trying to lift too much weight because they think that they, you know, they can lift it by themselves even though we know that it should, nobody should attempt to lift anything over 100 pounds or whatever it end up being. We're going to put a team lift program in. And then what you do is you come in and you here's I'm going this is the best nugget I'm going to give you about how to drive this home to an underwriter any day of the week. Come on. I read, I, I read Ken Blanchard, Sheldon Bowles. I told you I read a lot. I read these guys. I read Whale Done, and I understood after reading Ken Blanchard's book, Whale Done, that if you reward the behaviors you want to see replicated, you will see those behaviors replicated. And if you punish for the behaviors you don't want to see, you're going to see those behaviors replicated because psychologically people will do subconsciously whatever they have to do to get attention from the people they seek that attention from. And so we go in and we put mm. in incentive programs for catching people doing something right. And it's very simple. We go in, we can get the uh, lottery tickets, you know, from the 50-50 the drawings that you have that have a ticket on each side. And we yeah. make the lead, we, we have the leadership go in and it is their job randomly through the course of the month to catch as many people as they can doing something right. And they tear off the ticket and they give it to the team member. And then the other one goes in a fishbowl. And at the end of the month, there's a drawing and those people can take the, their ticket and they can redeem it for gift cards. They can redeem it for company branded gear that they may want or whatever else. But the most important thing that they get is recognition in front of everybody else in the organization because they did their job the way they were supposed to. And what Great you, idea. And what you fight is you fight those people who say, well, they should be doing it because it's their job. And my number one response is, and you should be leading your company because that's your job. You have a responsibility to every single person that comes into your organization, and you have a responsibility to their family that you are going to return their mother or father to the family at the end of the workday in exactly the same condition that they came to you in. And if you can't do that and you can't get behind that, you should be losing sleep at night because you're not doing what you should be doing for your team. And if you show them that you're serious enough to do these things and you get behind it and you make it fun and you have recognition, 90% of your problems are going to get cured because everybody's going to want to get in on a piece of that action. It's true. That's true. 
Wow, that's good stuff. That's good stuff, and I love that psychology. That stuff gets me going, and that's uh, that's uh, I've read a lot of his stuff, and I've never really pulled that out about that. So, you, uh, because as you said, and if loyal listeners, if you heard that, there is a lot there. No matter how you treat it, they're going to amplify that action, whether you like it or dislike it. Because what is it they they yearn for the attention of those who are supposed to be leading or something like that? I think you said absolutely. David? It's no different yeah. when you're raising your kids, man. Yeah. I use the same principle with my kids. I praise them when they do something right. I redirect them when they do something wrong. If punishment becomes punitive, I've seen it where if I punish my son for doing something that I'm not happy with, he's going to turn around the next day or even later that same day and do it again because that's how he got my attention. He got me away from the computer or from doing whatever else it was I was doing. And for that split second of time, he had 100% of my attention when at the end of the day, that's all he really wanted. So we have a conscious choice as to how we're going to motivate people. It doesn't matter if it's your team. It doesn't matter if it's your clients, prospects, whoever. David, here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy about this. I'm really pulling this together. I think this is the fourth podcast, maybe the third in the Summer of Sales series where I have heard something that you just said, which is really good. I've had two sales trainers on who told me, without them hearing each other saying this, that one of the reasons why agents say they failed or the reason why they left the industry was because they didn't get enough attention from those that they yearn to be like. And that is so powerful because I have heard agents say, you know, yeah, I left. I mean, I, I could have stayed in the industry, but man, the training was terrible. I couldn't get the, the, the anybody's time to kind of help me out. They were all busy doing their things or they were out playing golf when they, you know, when I was trying to learn and, and it goes back to what you're saying. It's all about getting that time from that leader, getting that recognition from that leader, from that company as to no matter what it is, a good or bad thing. Obviously, I love what you said, the good we're going to reward and the bad we're going to redirect. But uh, it's interesting how time with your leader or time with the person that you aspire to be is a very, very big motivating factor in how well your sales team will perform. That, that, that's, a common, that's a common thread there, loyal listeners, that I want you to pay attention to. And and it's a big reason, Jason, why I really don't go on sales calls for myself anymore, unless it's something where I get referred in because of a specific reason. The majority of my time is spent supporting the producers that we bring in and, and equipping them for success, because that's one of the other differentiators about my agency is I, I don't hire insurance people uh, to go out and produce business. I, I, don't need to. Because what I found is, go back to what I said again, right? Insurance industry is full of average people. Do I want to continue to pull from an average pool to to try and make my agency best in class? Or do I want to do something different that's going to help me do that? And as a result, I've I've made a very easy decision for me. I I look for cold-blooded killers. I want closers. I want people that put on a helmet and ram their head against the door every single day to get in. And then when they do, they close the business. I can teach you workers comp. I can teach you light duty. There are five things that we teach everybody when they come in the door. And I've already talked about the majority of them in terms of what our process is. And it's not rocket science. It's stuff that's very easy to understand. So if I can find a guy that's selling office supplies or copy machines or credit card processing or payroll services, and they've been in that position for four or five years, I know things. Number one, they made good money because you don't stick around unless you're making reasonable money in those positions. But number two, 
I know they know how to close, right? Yeah, and I know for, for sure. a fact that if I can have the conversation with those people, and I'm, I've got a whole process that we don't have time to get into here, um, but I'm actually, we, we, we will be talking about it later on in, in the beginning of 2020, but I have a whole process about how I recruit these people. We train them and bring them in and make them successful with zero risk to the agency financially and zero risk to the producer financially. David, David, what I want you to do in September, let's get you on the mastermind call. Or also, I would love to get you to a mastermind where you'd share this, but maybe also this could be something you could share at BrainShare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, What are you sharing at IAOA when you speak there in January? We're going to talk about how our specific method of recruiting people from outside of the industry to bring them in and make them successful. Oh, that's actually what you're going to be talking about. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. But I mean, it's not like it would be redundant. No, it's not. And also, a lot of the people, the the 80 to 90 people that are going to be there, they're kind of... they they don't go to IAOA. Let's just put it that way. They, well, they, I mean, they I'm, did the way that it's structured. They probably, you know, they may or may not come across me presenting there. Right? Exactly. So exactly. There's so many things going on. Exactly. And so. plus, like I said, I'd rather I, I'd like you also to do it at the brain share or at a mastermind meeting because this is something right here, as you know from the mastermind. This is high level stuff that we actually care about and implement. Not who's open on Flag Day. I yep. mean, we're actually Absolutely. talking about the the main things. David, wrapping this up, dude. I think this has been great, and I really do appreciate it. I mean, you've went from if you don't mind telling them premium revenue or whatever to really drive home the fact of scratch agency in 2016. To where you are now in 2019, I'm going to give you the benchmark. Scratch agency in 2016. At the at the end of 2018, I was still by myself, and the agency was at five hundred thousand dollars in agency revenue, not premium. In January of 2000, I'm sorry, that was at the end of 17. In January of 2018, we opened our first physical office because we were ready to do that, and we needed a place for people to come uh, to work. And we opened our second physical office in November of 18. And right now, if everything stays the way that it looks like it's going to stick, we're going to end uh, 2019 at roughly $3 million in annual revenue. Good for you, David. Good for you. And you know what, David? Yes, you've had some things in your life that have been uncontrollable, and they've, they've, they've directed you towards success and maybe some other ways that other people don't. But I want to tell you this, and I wholeheartedly believe this because I speak to a lot of people and I talk to a lot of intelligent people, which you are, David. The one common denominator between them all is they're all avid readers. Would you not agree that that's probably one been one of the most under-recognized tool that you have to where you are now is just being a reader and absorbing all this information? Yeah, I'll tell you, I read a stat one time when I was, it was, I think it was Dave Ramsey in one of his books was talking about how the average adult has only read two nonfiction books from the time they're in high school to the time they're 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's validity to the statistic or not, but mm-hmm. I can tell you, I don't, I don't ever read fiction. I only read nonfiction and things that are going to make me smarter mm-hmm. or give me, you know, an, an edge up on, on my competition. And, you know, the one thing I would tell you is, Jason, this is this. I see this every day. I see it in the online groups that you know we're all part of as agents. I see it when I go to you know continuing ed for my CIC or CRM or whatever. The one thing I would leave everybody with is: do not limit your potential by limiting your ability to envision. And here's what I mean by that: you could put me in a room full of ten agents 
And if I was just having a normal conversation where I wasn't amped up and getting excited and passionate about what I was talking about, they would all look at me and say, you know what, man, you're nuts. That's not how we do it in the insurance industry. We don't, we, it's never been done that way. We don't do it that way. And it, it kills me because there, there's always a better way to do things, period. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I'm the yep. smartest guy in the world by a long shot, but I see so many people in this industry that allow themselves to limit their future potential by what they can see and touch and feel in front of them right now. When I worked at Super Target, we had common practices. It didn't matter if you were in Minneapolis or if you were in Miami. If I walked into your operation and you were unloading a truck, I knew exactly how that truck was supposed to be unloaded. And there was a trifold brochure for every single thing. We get caught up in our industry about thinking outside the box. Everybody wants to, oh, well, you need to think outside the box. You need to do, my, my phrase when I would go into a Target store to audit their processes was, are you on common practices or not? And if they weren't, I already knew why their performance was down. Thus, the reason I went there to visit them. <laughs> in, this, in, this, in this industry, it's the same. Right. We have regulations. We have things we have to adhere to, but that doesn't mean that we can't do things a different way. So I would submit to you the same thing I used to tell the people that I would go in when we would work to get stores cleaned up. And that is this true creativity. Isn't thinking outside the box. Anybody, if they try hard enough can think outside the box. If you truly want to be creative and drive change in an industry, figure out a way to stay inside the box and do it a different way. Hmm. And, and, and blue ocean. Oh my gosh. What's the name of that book, David? Um, Blue Ocean Strategy. Blue Ocean. Shoot, I can't think of the name. It was a very hard book to read. It was a very hard book, but that's the same thing that they said as well, is that you don't necessarily need to get out of the ocean. You just need to quit swimming in the red ocean and make blue ocean. And and it was and, and they they backed it up with all this. Uh, let me see. I want to see this thing. Yeah, it's Blue Ocean Strategy. That's the name of the book. I read about three or four years ago. Like I said, very, very complicated to read because these people are intelligently smart. But it it happens, it says the same thing, you know, is that you don't necessarily need to think outside the box. You just need to think of a different way inside the box. And that's very brilliant that you say that. And I agree because that's what everybody's trying to do. I even heard a guy say, which I thought was pretty good, is he said, don't think outside the box. He said, get outside the box and then start thinking thought that was pretty good. It's the same thing, just differently said. But uh, I thought it was pretty good. David, I appreciate your time. Thank you for everything you do. Thanks for how you contributed in the Mastermind. And, uh, you know, I just love it because you coming on lets the loyal listeners – and so we're starting to get a lot more Mastermind signups from loyal listeners. And it's funny because I'm talking to this guy, Joe, the other day, and he tells me, he says, man, I've listened to you since 2014. And he says, I just don't ever know why I haven't pulled the trigger on the Mastermind thing. And the really thing is about David is it's 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 a herd mentality. It's that the early adopters came early, but now the herd is wanting to come. And that's a good thing. That's a bad thing. Because like when I was talking with Joe, I was interviewing him because I just can't let anybody get in, right? All of a sudden, just because you're like, hey, I, I can pay $99 a month to have access to this group. 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good fit for this group. And so that's kind of one of the hard parts because we like clean water in. We don't want everybody who thinks the same way. Occasionally, I'll let somebody in for free um, if they've been in the business like less than three months or six months. Because, God, if I could have had access to the brains that are inside the mastermind in my first three to six months, I would have changed the game. And having access to people like you, David. And I do appreciate your time. And thanks for, for giving us uh, an example of, of how we can grow from zero to three million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you lawyer listeners, you guys love, we all love to make excuses. And you're thinking, yeah, Jason, he was somewhere else for 15 years. Yeah, well, why he was there for 15 years, he was making a shitload of money too. It's just he decided to go do it on his own so that he could make all of the money. Well, let me talk about that real quick, David. Is it not bullshit that like if you own the agency, you like you the the amount of money our our people probably think that we make versus what we do. I've said this a lot, and this is true and it's not. But in 2009 was my last year in the insurance business where I wasn't owned my own agency. I still yet like take home, like bring home at the end of the day, have made yet to make more money as an insurance agency owner than I did my last year as actually a full-time producer where I got to come in at seven in the morning and leave at five and not have to worry about anything. I, I've If you added my commissions today, yes, I'm making more. But because I have to invest in the business, I'm actually taking home to my family less. And I think there's a lot of people that don't realize that. They think that if they become a, they're a producer now and they want to become an agency owner, that they're going to immediately make 75% more because they only make 25% or 30%, whatever it is. And that's really not necessarily the truth. Am I wrong or right about that, David? No, you're right about it. And I mean, again, we'll, we can talk about it more under separate cover down the road, but it's one of the reasons why we have a pretty aggressive equity share for any of our top production. I'm completely transparent about what it is that I take out of the agency or don't take out of the agency. And I give all of the employees, it doesn't matter if you're you know, just a, a CSR who comes in and works part-time or you're a producer that's a, got a million dollar book of business. Every single employee in my organization has a path to equity because I want them to learn to think like a business owner. I want them to understand the difference between being a clock puncher and being somebody who actually takes ownership of everything that they do. And so to your, to your point, my team knows exactly you know, what I'm taking out and they have an understanding of it. And I think that if we all as agency principals did a better job of communicating openly with our team and talking about the nuts and bolts of operational issues, for, for lack of nothing better to, to use as an example, if we were just completely transparent about all of that stuff, we would not sure. lose our top producers. We wouldn't lose the guy who was worried about not only about only making 25 cents on the dollar at renewal because they would understand why and they would have they would have a reason why that was okay because they understand the difference at that point between being income statement rich and being balance sheet rich. David, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Loyal listeners, if you want to, if David, if someone wants to reach out to you because they just think that you're smarter than shit and they want to learn how they get a hold of you. <laughs> They can get a hold of me on Facebook. They can get a hold of me uh, through the website at FloridaRiskPartners.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm I'm pretty much anywhere. If you if you have a hard time getting a hold of me, please uh, when you finally do, let me know where all you look so I can make sure that I'm there next time for the next person. I will tell you, as I said earlier, my father and I share a name. I'm David R. And he is David E. And so look for David R. And you'll you'll find me. I can promise you. Even if David. you Google. David, I know you live close by, but are you planning on staying at uh, the Don Cesar? Or are you going to drive home after the, it's over every day? 
you know, if you listen to everything I've said, I tell you guys multiple times, I have four kids. That's the most important thing in my life. And anytime Mm -hmm. that I'm away from them, there's a piece of me missing. So I'm going to commute back and forth, but I will be there to enjoy uh, at the same extent as if I were staying the night. Yep. Can't wait to get your, can't wait for you to be there and just hear your advice. And it's, it's a completely different format and forum. It's all in a room. We're all sharing things. I mean, you can stand up and just talk and say, hey, this is my thought about that. It really, really allows us to connect and it allows us to share our brains. Hey, this has been Jason Castle with Agency Intelligence Podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, being with us today with David Carruthers. Hey, agents, listen to this. Listen to this. What are we terrible at? Think of it. Think of it. Really? We're, we're terrible at training, right? We're not very good at hiring. We're not very good, terrible at firing, actually. Uh, terrible at creating process and some workflows. Terrible at technology and implementing that technology and even knowing what type of technology we want. And the list goes on and on. Now, listen, I'm an agency owner. And I, you know how it is. To, to fix a problem, the first thing you've got to do is you got to admit you have a problem. Here's what you do. Go to virtualintel.com. Check out what we do because we do all those bad things that you can't do. Really? And you may do one or two of them well. Good for you if you can do them all. Just want you to know you're in the minority. But if you can't do any of them good or you don't even want to do them anymore because it just takes too much mental power, then good for you for realizing that and give us a call. I'm telling you, virtual intelligence, that's what we do. And where we specialize in high quality VEs, not virtual assistants. Look it up. Go to ChatGPT. Put in what's the difference between a virtual assistant and a virtual employee. Enough said. I don't have enough time to go on and on about all the differences on this 60 second commercial, but you've got time to search it and look at it. That's what we do. We deliver high quality VEs. We mix the technology with it. We train them on the technology, give them and the technology to you and you're off to the races. I'm not joking with you. You can call my agency at any time, ask for Lordland. And we do ask her, say, how fast are you able to do quotes? I've actually got a couple videos of it. That's right. We can do five to 10 carriers in one quote in three to seven minutes. So you give me an auto quote, I can do five to 10 carriers in three to seven minutes. How are we doing it? We're doing it through the technology of virtual intelligence. Give us a call. Check us out. You can ask for me personally. I'll do the demo for you. Who are they? Cast certified.